Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am Pastor Abraham. <laughs> and I am Assistant Pastor Shane. Are there assistant pastors? What is that? What is that? Uh, Bishop? Yeah, Archdiocese Shane. Yeah, yeah, Deacon. <laughs> Deacon Shane, there you go. Deacon Spiker sounds cool, I guess. I don't know. It does, yeah. If you're into that sort of thing. I mean, I'm not big on robes. <laughs> we kicked this right off with some blasphemy. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I have so many questions. Like, what is that thing they swing that's got the incense in it? Like, what is that all about? I don't know. Oh. Like, is that full of sage or is that witchy? What is that? What does that do? That's a great question. I actually don't think I ever learned the name of it. I'm sure that there's some listeners screaming at their AirPods or their <laughs> their car stereo right now <laughs> trying to tell us what it is. And I apologize we can't hear you, but... Yeah, that thing. <laughs> yeah, I've got an expert that I can ask. Oh, okay. My best friend went to that type of school for many, many years. So he's he's familiar with all that, all the rites of passage and all that fun stuff. So anyway, we digress. Yeah, why, why are we blaspheming so early, Shane? Because today we are talking about conversion therapy. And, you know, when we talk about therapy, it's definitely in, in the heaviest of air quotes because it is certainly not. Right. To kick this off, we're going to state right out that we are taking the stand of science and morality and human beingness, which is that conversion therapy is dangerous, it is immoral, and it should be outright banned. We're not going to mince words on this, and we want to be transparent with our listeners. There is nothing, nothing to support this. Under no circumstances should conversion therapy be used. This is just... We done messed up as humans. We got to fix it by turning the clock back and not doing this thing anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so we wanted to tackle this because with some kind of current major world events and and some people who were brought into the Supreme Court and all the fun stuff that goes on with politics, we felt that this topic was pretty relevant in terms of just understanding what it was, because it is something that still occurs. And in order to really address this thing, you have to understand what it is so that you can tackle the problem at the roots, right? Like, and this is kind of the thing with like any sort of disease and, you know, you have to understand the disease to be able to treat it. 
this type of therapy is a disease and it needs to be treated. It needs to be banned. It needs to be, it need, we need to be rid of it forever. And the best vaccine for it is knowledge. It is the coronavirus of treatments. <laughs> it really is. It's really, it's just so awful. <laughs> You know what I heard? It's, it's horrible. Weird Al did a fun thing recently about the Supreme Court where he said, if the Supreme Court is supreme, where's the guac, sour cream, and ground beef? <laughs> <laughs> I love that his, he's so wholesome. Yeah, I thought that was really good. He's a gem. We need to protect him at all costs. This year can't take him. Yes, very much so. All right. So <laughs> definitely want to do one of these PSA fair trigger warning things. This episode very well make you upset. We're going to be discussing things where people come to harm. We're going to be discussing a controversial topic. This is real history and a current state of affairs. So we ask that while this may be uncomfortable to hear, this is important. So if you can listen to it, then I think that there is a lot of important information here that you can use and we can strive to do better together as a species. And also, if this is something where you can't hear that sort of thing because it's difficult to listen to, I do understand that. And maybe we'll catch you next time. And I think also, too, well, if you've made it this far, at the very least, check out the show notes because there's going to be some resources there that we'll be able to provide about this. Or feel free to reach out to us and we'll provide some resources on how to get past this. That's maybe not so explicit in what we're talking about. In, in this particular episode. And if this is your very first time ever listening to our podcast, welcome. And <laughs> <laughs> yep. this isn't really the kind of thing we cover very frequently, but we cover all things that we can think of that fit under the umbrella of psychology. We try and ask questions that we think are interesting and find answers that are things that maybe you wouldn't know right away, you know, sort of dig up those cool answers to things. And actually part of the reason that we talked about this, like I mentioned before, like we, you know, it's kind of a current affairs type of thing, but also it is something that falls under the scope of, at least under the term of, of therapy. Like people use this as therapy, as, as a therapy, as a, as a treatment for something. And also there are psychologists and counselors that practice this. And so you know, it does, it does not even tangentially relate to psychology. It is part of the psychology field. And you'll see, as we kind of go into the history, that it is relevant to understand this history and understand that it's still being practiced. So in this episode, what we want to try to ask are the questions of what is conversion therapy? What does it aim to do? And what kind of actual impact does this type of quote unquote therapy have on the people that access it? Right. So if you're sticking with us still, Let's dig into some background, which is to say we want to lay out our terms of what we're talking about. So ready for that? Let's do it. All right. So what is conversion therapy? Well, conversion therapy, which is also sometimes called, I think incorrectly, reparative therapy, is a quote unquote mm -hmm. therapy that sets out to change the sexual orientation or gender identity of someone who may identify as homosexual or bisexual and to try and change them to a heterosexual orientation or to try and change someone's gender identity if it's one other than what was assigned at birth to one that is the one assigned at birth of the two dichotomies that are recognized by the groups who do this. Because I don't know if we've dug into this very much, but sex is the construct that relates to your actual genes and physical makeup. And there are not just two because sex relies on chromosomes and DNA to occur in a certain way. And there's actually a wide spectrum of different types of where you have maleness and femaleness in just the sexual organs and reproductive systems where it's actually not black and white. Then there's a whole middle category that has a name called intersex 
and there's even again there's there's still things between those where you the biology is not clear and then of course gender is the social construct of the expectations and the roles played based on what someone's sex is or how they identify with how they relate to that sex in the frame of conversion therapy it's important to understand those particular challenges or those particular terms so that you can really understand what people are trying to do they're basically saying if you are identifying as transgender as intersex as homosexual or any of those things they're basically using conversion therapy to alter those terms alter those preferences, alter those perspectives and move towards more alignment, I guess, quote unquote, is what they would say. Like if you're born with male genitalia and you identify as trans, they would be moving you towards identifying as male if you maybe identify as female or gender gender fluid. So on the outset, you can hear how wrong that is, I feel like. And if you don't kind of like get it in your gut that that's incorrect or like problematic, we'll definitely lay it out more for you. The therapy, I should say, the therapy part of it, not the sex orientation or, or gender identity or anything like that. Yeah. And I think the way that I sort of hear this is there's sort of this, there's this group of people who say, here is what we have decided the sexes are and what these genders are. And these are what they are supposed to be. And therefore you need to align with what they say that they are. And if you don't, then we're going to torture you until you do. And what's interesting about that, because you mentioned intersex, it's like it's actually ambiguous. And so essentially what they would do is force you to pick one. Right. And be like, well, can't really tell just by looking at you because you are not built with the same equipment as the roles that we have pre-identified. So now we need you to try and, and slot into one of those categories. If you don't choose, we'll choose for you. But one way or another, you're going to be you're going to have this gender identity that we insist that you have. And you immediately, I think the red flags are there. Like, yeah. And I think if you just do the perspective exercise of like, let's just say that, you know, this other organization of people came in and their ideas of this were flipped and they just started taking random people off the street who would normally align with the people who are perpetuating conversion therapy and be like, you're not doing our expectations. We're going to torture you until you do. And I think you immediately see how problematic that is. Yeah, absolutely. So, To kind of go further into this, many practitioners of conversion therapy aim to quote unquote cure ailments related to orientations other than heterosexuality or to identifying as cisgender. And it actually aligns with other pseudoscientific processes in in the idea that a lot of times pseudoscience will tout a cure for an ailment, which there is no known cure for or something that doesn't need to be cured. Right. right? Homosexuality doesn't need to be cured. Transgender doesn't need to be cured. That stuff doesn't need to be cured. It's not an ailment. It's not an ailment. And that's exactly it. And this the proponents for this type of therapy aim to cure those things for which there is no need to cure. Yeah, it's like making up a problem so that you can throw a solution at it and one that's particularly damaging. And actually, that leads right into this. So we, we've we've said this is called conversion therapy. There's also the reparative therapy. And the word therapy is doing some heavy lifting in there because therapy, which is derived from a Greek word meaning to heal, in the scientist and practitioner language, we use therapeutic and therapy specifically to refer to a healing practice. And conversion therapy is not only not a healing practice, it does the opposite. It causes harm. It causes suffering. It results in physical damage and long-lasting psychological trauma. So even calling it conversion therapy is not an appropriate name for it because therapy is not, that's not what that word means. I think you could even call it conversion torture and you'd be more on track. That's definitely a more accurate name for this. So 
we're going to give some examples of how this started and really illustrate how harmful this is. So beginning in 1899, 121 years ago, Albert von Schrenk Notzing, can't believe I said that without too much of a problem, that was great. <laughs> made the bold claim that he was able to change and manipulate a gay man's sexual impulses through hypnosis. Going back to our episode on hypnosis, if you want to go listen to that and see how effective that is. Now, through continued sessions, and actually they had 45 specific sessions on hypnosis, wow. Shrank Notting worked with the man to change his orientation and ultimately claimed to be successful. Of course he did. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But he was not. <laughs> yeah. At the time that this was occurring, again, as we mentioned, homosexuality was described as being deviant behavior and sometimes even resulted in criminal charges. There are actually still many countries around the world to this day that will persecute homosexuality from the government and federal level. I think that you could even make the case that any kind of discrimination at all is a form of persecution, but certainly criminal charges that would result in prison time and even harsh sentences is very serious. But anyway, this had a historic precedent and maintained for centuries. And honestly, like this is why this man was even receiving treatment to begin with, quote unquote treatment, because it was considered illegal. It was considered immoral. It was considered antithetical to any sort of religious practice around then. Like it was it was not something that was widely accepted. Where was he located, by the way? I believe he was in Germany. Okay. Yeah. The European nations, I think definitely I would expect this because there are other cultures and countries where there are different gender identities and sexuality is built into the culture and that those people have, aren't, have never been treated poorly in certain places in the world. And so I was just wondering, cause European definitely seemed like you know, I would expect to see that there. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, especially around that. I mean, over just the centuries of the ruling classes that have been there. So, yeah. and also this is not like a new thing, like the conversion therapy thing, as far as like, the reason why people were actually getting the therapy or like having to seek it, this was a common thing. It led to really dark paths in humanity that uh, all these attempts to cure these ailments. And again, it's not an ailment. It's not something to be cured, but you saw this historically time and time again, trying to treat people for being gay, for being homosexual, for not identifying as, as you know, the gender that they're born with or the sex that they're born with. Like, I mean, you saw this happen a lot and it's unfortunate because it led to stuff like this, where on with, with the rise of psychology and kind of the advent of this and in looking at this, you start seeing more people apply quote unquote scientific practices to treat these things that were social problems that weren't actually problems. Yeah. So we, we didn't announce this, but we sort of are at the point right, right now where we're listing some examples of types of conversion therapy. And there's, there's quite a few. So we, I don't think we listed everything that exists. But so we mentioned hypnosis. The next one, I believe this is Eugen Steinock is how I would read that name. That's how I would go with that. Okay. He experimented with testicular transplants in the 1920s. Was this in the United States also? I believe so. Yes. Okay. In his testicular transplants, gay men were castrated and then given heterosexual testicles. Like, this is a thing that actually happened, that they tried. Suffice it to say, this did not work because that's ridiculous and dumb. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like I said before, yeah, if people are identifying this as a social problem, it led to some very dark, dark things 
at first it shouldn't have been a social problem, but because it was, and because people wanted to change it, people were just seeing what they could see to, to what would work. They would just do all these things. And this is just for gay men. This isn't even, ha this doesn't have to do with gay women who were often institutionalized, who were locked away in places that they would never see the light of day again over these things. Ironically, conversion therapy was the social problem. You know, it became so costly because people were being institutional. It's a whole thing. So Anyway, I get really, I apologize. I get really worked up about this because it's so upsetting that this is a thing that happened. So yeah, I think anybody with humanitarian bone in their body would be upset by this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So of course, Sigmund Freud gets in the mix somewhere. Sigmund Freud actually attempted to explain homosexuality, stating that humans were inherently bisexual and that conditioning throughout a lifetime resulted in homosexuality. He didn't mark homosexuality as a disease specifically, but his theory marked it as a learned behavior that could be changed, which is wrong. Like it's not, we, we know now that it is not a learned behavior, but he was kind of hypothesizing about homosexuality, which, you know, ultimately led to other people taking that and running with it and turning it into something that was like, oh, well, if it's a choice, if it's something that's learned, then it can be unlearned. And that's the core of a lot of the, the conversion therapy issues. Right. Yeah. That, that I think was the major, cause I don't think that he actually a attempted to change any, any of it in his practice, but the implications of declaring this as something that could be changed definitely spurred further attempts at this. And so another type here was electroconvulsive therapy. We actually did an episode of this a long time ago. This is like one of our first five episodes we released, I think. Yeah. So that was one. There was also attempts at operant conditioning. And so these were used to, to try and change orientation of these things. Again, this is just another one of those strategies. And these procedures were often painful and they did not maintain for long if any change occurred. So they might last a little while, but then the effects were ephemeral and usually a product of the treatment environment. I mean, very much like when we talked about in the witch trials in, the, in Europe, where they would they would torture these these women and get them to confess to being witches and then as soon as they were done torturing them they're like hey I'm not really a witch I really need you to stop breaking my thumbs and so yeah. I I just told you that I was a witch so that you would stop and this is a very similar thing here where I was like okay if you stop if you I will tell you that I'm straight now if you'll please stop electrocuting me and like dunking me in ice freezing ice baths and torturing my genitals and then as soon as they're that was over they're like I'm gonna timidly go back to this place where. I find myself because that's my natural orientation. Right. Or something, something else would happen where, you know, you saw like a higher rate of suicide attempts and, and suicide successes as a result of these types of things, because it was this harmful. And you'll see kind of when we get into the stats later, how truly dangerous this is. So practitioners also began using aversion therapy. And so the goal was to make homosexuality so disgusting and so vile to the client that they would no longer have same-sex orientation or desires. And this looked like a, a number of things. I mean, the first thing I think of is immediately Clockwork Orange, right? Like like they're making right. like crime so aggressively disgusting that it's like he physically would vomit as a result of seeing any sort of violent crime. And so, uh, you know, this took a variety of shapes when they were doing this, either delivering a shock in the presence of certain images like homosexual pornography or a vomit inducing medication when looking at photos of their significant others. That was a real thing. They would show them pictures of the their loved ones, that their, their partners, their significant others, and then induce vomiting and do shocks in the presence of those pictures to, in order to get them to not orient to same-sex relationships. Another one that was used was lobotomies. We did an episode on lobotomies as therapy a while back. And yeah, this is another thing used to treat homosexuality. And it just as a quick refresher on this, it was some sort of 
intervention, I'll call it, because therapy and treatment don't seem to work as terms for this, but intervention in which the practitioner would scramble someone's brains. They would stick ice picks up in the brains and swivel them back and forth to just scramble it, or they would drill into their heads, or they would trepan their heads and would either chemically or mechanically would disrupt the neural tissue, um, oftentimes in the frontal cortex, which is where we do a lot of our thinking, planning, emotions, that sort of thing. And so the results of this were not good. Yeah. And certainly did not change homosexual behavior. It just made somebody live with brain damage for the rest of their lives. If they survived, if they've survived the procedure, because if you go into like the historical case studies, there was one procedure where the guy was the guy that was performing the procedure and had the ice pick inserted and let go of the ice pick to pose for a picture and the ice pick slipped and the patient died. I mean, it was such a horrific procedure and the fact that they were using it to treat something that wasn't even an issue, they were causing brain damage to treat something that didn't require a cure is so upsetting. Human beings, this, this, this is one of those episodes where I get, I, I kind of go back. I'm like, humans are the worst. (laughs) You get all cynical. I get really cynical about it and I try not to because there are some good things that are kind of going to come kind of at the end of the episode. You'll see, right. People are starting to come around, but yeah, I have these moments now. Here's what's important to know about this. This sounds pretty extreme. All of the stuff that we're talking about sounds extreme, and they sound like it's maybe uh, you know the result of some types of fundamentalists that are just anti-gay and anti-trans and all that stuff. But this wasn't a flock of extremist therapists who sought to end homosexuality. The American Psychiatric Association actually labeled homosexuality to be a psychiatric disorder, and it wasn't until 1973 that it was officially removed from the DSM. So up until 1973 homosexuality was still a a clinically significant diagnosis that you could receive from the DSM. And so when we start looking at this as a, as a problem, maybe we can kind of say, Oh, it's a sign of the times in the 1700s. Maybe people thought this was an issue. This was up until 1973. We had already landed on the moon. And just five years later in 1978 is when Harvey milk was killed. Right. In San Francisco, so pretty pretty close on the heels of that. So yeah, this again the lasting damage from this sort of thing. And today, many professional organizations speak openly against the use of conversion therapy, with the APA being one of the primary proponents against its use. So really, the vast majority of the scientific community has coalesced around the fact that first of all, conversion therapy is wrong, and second, that gender identities and various sexual orientations and fluidity are not problematic psychologically or socially. Right. Absolutely. So I think it's worth taking a look at how conversion therapy really began to to come up, like how it became so popular, because like I said, it wasn't some group of people that were like, it wasn't like facilitated communication where it's like this, like group of people that kind of like tucked away in the corner and they're like still ravenous about it. Like this was a a large movement. And so despite the call to remove homosexuality from the DSM in a larger movement away from attempts to cure homosexuality, fringe groups actually continued to work on this. So at first this was widely accepted. Once it was kind of like, Hey, we shouldn't be doing this. This is harmful. This is a problem. That's when you started seeing these fringe groups kind of start to emerge. And you saw people across the the United States, at least still using this type of procedure. And and ultimately what you saw was they, these people became these self-proclaimed experts on this procedure, on this type of therapy, or they were part of faith-based groups. And the largest proponents for using conversion therapy were often faith-based groups. And you'll see that outlined in something that we're going to talk about in a second. 
And as you can imagine, like many things, when you're doing something harmful, you try and make it sound better. And so uh, these groups adopted terms that were more friendly than calling them aversive. And instead, you began to hear terms such as conversion, reparative, restorative, that sort of thing. And so it just takes something that is wrong and tries to make it sound better by putting nicer words in front of it. And these right. naming things like this does have an effect. We actually do have an episode planned to talk about how, how names of things can really affect how we react to them psychologically and behaviorally. Speaking of naming things, a lot of the folks who practice this, who would be, you know, who would be therapists, quote unquote, in this space would actually identify as ex-gay ministries. Like the groups would call themselves ex-gay or ex-homosexual and, and would include a variety of treatments that included things like talk therapy, hypnotism, gay conversion camps. A lot of times you'll hear people get sent off to gay conversion camps and also exorcisms. Exorcisms were widely used to treat this. We didn't see a lot of cases where it was as harmful as like, let's say the young man who had passed away, who had autism, the child who'd passed away recently during the uh, exorcism. But you mm. saw this happen where the, the the real, you know, the talk therapy, the hypnotism, all that stuff was pretty useless and pretty you know, pretty, I don't want to say benign because it's not benign. It's useless, but the gay conversion camps are what is often used. People will get sent away to these camps. People will be sent to get treatment. They'll be sent away with other people who are quote unquote suffering and they'll receive like this really intensive type of intervention at these places. They did a South Park on that with Butters when (laughs) they kept telling him he was confused and he's like, I mean, I don't know what you're accusing me of. I'm very confused. They're like, see, he's confused. And then <laughs> took him to one of these places. Oh man! So in these camps, so again, we're we're sort of talking about they use these names. They try and find these justifications, and so one of the justifications that they would try and use was they would describe this gay lifestyle or homosexual lifestyle, or they might describe it as deviant or whatever, as leading to other problems, both for that person, I think, for the society at large. So a quote from James Gouet, a former conversion therapy patient outline some of the language used in these practices. So I'm going to quote him here. Quote, these materials talked about how the gay lifestyle would create disease, depravity, and misery. I was convinced that doing what I was told would change my attractions and confused about why these methods supposedly worked for others, but not for me. End quote. And I think that is a really important insight as to all of this. That's part of why this is so harmful is because the folks that are receiving this type of intervention are being told that it works for everybody who goes and that they're the ones with the problem. Exactly. And so now what happens when it's not working for you? All of a sudden the therapy's not working. All of a sudden you're not changing. All of a sudden like you're not quote unquote getting better. And so imagine the psychological harm that goes into just un- like hearing that, being told that this works for people and then not seeing those effects for yourself like that. That is just unbelievably damaging. Do you know what that sounds like again is gaslighting. It's 100% gaslighting. Absolutely. Comes back to right back to the Like, no, you're crazy. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so, so harmful. I mean, this is a really extreme version of it where people are paying thousands of dollars to send somebody to a camp to, to quote unquote, get better, to become an ex gay ministry. Or did you ever see the movie, the house on haunted Hill? I think it was. With a Vincent it's Price. It's been a long time. Okay. And it was, I think the original one was with Vincent Price. I saw the remake. I don't think I saw the original one, but the in the setup for this, there is this surgeon at, or I guess he is a doctor at a psychiatric hospital, and he does this like crazy torturing on his patients where he like cuts them open to do like surgery while they're awake Ugh. and that sort of thing, and with no anesthetic. And the I think it, it highlights the idea that like 
the person who is holding the knife here is the crazy one, not the person who's under the knife. Right. And, but they've been sort of sanctioned to do this sort of thing. And so it's, uh, I don't know. It just reminded me of that fun side reference. I think that illustrates it perfectly. I mean, that's really what this is. It's like the people that are saying, no, you're crazy are the ones that really need the help. Yeah. And actually there's a really great case example as we wrap this up too, like as we get towards the end of this. So now before we kind of like get into the current state of conversion therapy, I want to take some time to try to unpack the science behind it because some folks will say that there's some science, there's evidence that it works. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And I think it's worth looking at what research is out there for this. And basically, there's none. There's no scientific evidence that conversion therapy works. But there is the exact opposite where it says there is plenty of evidence that it is harmful beyond reason. And that is something that we have to look at. When we were doing the research on this and I was pulling up stuff, I'm like, does conversion therapy work? Everything that I found was like, no, it doesn't work. This is harmful. Every scholarly article, stop doing it. This is harmful. Everything that I found on this was all in opposition of conversion therapy. There was nothing out there that said this works. Right. And every professional organization at this point has come out against this, where you have people who are practitioners, who are well-educated, who are scientists, doctors, you span the gamut, educated, intelligent, thoughtful human beings. We have clearly understood that this is a mistake in human history, unfortunately one that has not gone away. So as we mentioned, historically aversive or painful interventions, these, I guess, strategies have been used. And these painful moments were then, as we had described earlier, they were supposed to be paired with images of loved ones or things related to whatever someone's homosexual urges might be. The idea here is it's trying to build a new association for that person between painful and uncomfortable events and those preferred events or those preferred ideas and experiences. And therefore, if the painful event can outweigh that preferred orientation, then those preferred events will no longer be preferred because they're every time you experience them, they are associated with pain and discomfort. And we've mentioned before this like taste aversion thing on this podcast. And there are some fascinating examples where you take 
for example, rats who, if they were to consume some piece of food and then later get sick from that food, they will avoid that food like the plague, which is funny because it's rats, but (laughs) (laughs) they will no longer consume that food. Even if it's like, was their most preferred food, the sight of it, the smell of it, they will get away from it. And it's that idea of if it's associated with poison. And so anytime that we or other animals consume food and that food makes us sick, then we will avoid that food. I actually had a friend who, you know, those like veggie straw chips that you can get. Yeah. Um, and he ate those one time and then he got sick later. And I don't, I, you know, even he has said it, he doesn't think it's from the veggie straws, but to this day won't eat them, won't touch them because he got sick one time shortly after having eaten them. And even though they weren't necessarily associated, his sort of body had that association. Right. And they were close enough in time that now he, now he won't eat them. But I think that's an important point to kind of like highlight the differences too, right? So like I've had food poisoning. I won't drink toffee nut lattes from Starbucks anymore. <laughs> that's a choice. Yeah. Homosexuality is not a choice. So like that, I think is important to kind of like illustrate that difference, right? Like, cause I mean, like, cause like when in the situations we're talking about, like, yes, I might avoid this food because that's, you know, I'm not oriented to eat veggie straws. Like that's not like my <laughs> taste fair. orientation. Right. Like, so, but, but people will do that. People will say like, oh, well, it'll be like this thing. It'll be like when you get food poisoning, it'll be like if you had this bad experience. And that's not the case at all because sexual orientation is not something that is a choice. And so were it a choice, then yeah. I mean, by principle, by logical reasoning that might work, but because it's not a choice, it's not going to change. If it does change, it does change temporarily, but it will return because you're, you can't just treat that. It won't go away. There's a critically important distinction that you just made. It kind of reminds me of like, you could choose to not poo and to like hold it in. And there are people for whom this is a really serious problem, but it'll just back up and build and build and build until you need an actual medical intervention. And so it's like, you can hold out for a little while, but it's not something you can actually choose indefinitely because it will either kill you or you'll need surgery to get it corrected. Right. And I think in a similar way that we're not, this is not something that that one chooses. It's something that one, that's just what you do. Right. And so to kind of illustrate this even more in the context of do no harm, there is no scientific evidence that shows that it works, but there's plenty that shows that what people are doing when they use conversion therapy is harmful. They show that there are increases in symptoms of depression, anxiety, self-harming, self-destructive behavior, and suicide attempts as a side effect of using this therapy as a direct link to using this therapy. There are folks that have received that were not having these ideations, that were not engaging in these behaviors, were not having these thoughts and feelings until after they received conversion therapy because there is just so much harmful language built into this type of therapy that it results in all these horrific associations, all of these horrific perspectives on how the world is supposed to work. I mean, and you see this very clearly in Ryan et al. in 2009. They found that outside of conversion therapy, LBGT individuals who are rejected by their family. So this is just an example of how languaging and rejection and just the acceptance component of all this can be harmful. LBGT individuals who are rejected by their families are more likely to experience a ton of psychological distress and have a higher increased risk of harm or suicide just by being rejected. So now imagine going to a conversion therapy camp where everybody there is telling you that you are not good enough, that you are sick for being gay, that you are wrong for being gay. And they're basically, it's it's a group of people that are telling you that you're rejected. It's your family sending you there, telling you that you're rejected. You already know the risk is there just from the family rejecting you, but now you've kind of formalized that rejection in a really clear way. 
Yeah, absolutely. So should we do some quick statistics on this? Yeah, let's talk about it. All right. So the LGBTQIA plus individuals who have rejected their families and communities were 8.4 times more likely to have attempted suicide, 5.9 times more likely to have higher levels of depression, 3.4 times more likely to use illegal drugs, 3.4 times more likely to be at risk of HIV and STDs. And that actually has nothing to do with their orientation and everything to do with being ostracized to the point of not really having a clear community. And so sort of trying to just find a community to, to be a part of. Yeah. And so there is often some more promiscuity that can occur there, but that's because it's been so pushed underground that, you know, there's just people don't feel safe or comfortable or sort of trying to find their way on their own. As of this recording, 698,000 or more LBGTQ plus individuals, adults specifically, have received this therapy in some form. They have been put into this type of therapy sometime in their life. That is almost a million people have received this type of treatment. Yeah, there's a whole lot. And they're expecting another 20,000 or more. And even according to the Trevor Project, 80,000 will receive some sort of contact with this conversion therapy. Again, not a therapy. If practices continue in states where therapy has not been banned, and there are many in the United States that have not been banned, and there are many other places around the world where this is not banned. There's a general question to be asked here, and this is sort of where one takes a stand on this and how one takes a stand on this. And I think coming from a basic humanitarian perspective, and I mean, I think this is a scientific perspective. I think that there are a lot of things that would align with this, from, but I think from a most basic humanitarian perspective of like, let's treat each other like we're a member of the same species and we deserve life and that sort of thing. You always have to ask the question, does this thing that we're examining, whatever it might be, does it promote the health and well-being and equity of human beings? If it does, then we can, we can invest in it. We can pursue it. And I think it's a worthy cause. If it does not, then it needs to be discontinued. Mostly immediately, it needs to be discontinued. I can't think of a circumstance right. in which it should be like, oh, well, let's maybe just wait a little longer and figure it out. Yeah, let's wait this out. Let's see what. Let's see where this goes. Let's see where this leads. Yeah. Probably not so much here. No, it's pull the plug. It's gone. We're done with it now. And so I, I think that's always the question to ask: is Are we improving the health and well-being and equity? And if we're not, then what we're doing is wrong, and we need to stop. And this is a very clear example. This this conversion therapy thing. It is an example of not promoting the health and well-being and equity of humans. It is treating them as unequal to begin with. That is a foundation, the assumption of how one goes about justifying doing conversion therapy, and it results in a detriment of health and well-being. Yep, absolutely. So I think that brings us to the space where we need to talk about what it looks like today, because we've given you a lot of stats. We've given you kind of like a global perspective on it, and we've given you a history, but you need to know what it looks like today, because it sounds like a fairly archaic practice but it's not. So as of this writing, there are at least 30 states that still allow conversion therapy to occur in one form or another. And there are also advocates in this state that advocate for laws and governance of conversion therapy to be allowed in those states. 30 states in the United States allow this. That is 60% of the states. Yeah. It's insane. Some of those advocates are in the highest levels of government. They're in the current administration. They have been vocal about this. Mm-hmm. I guess current at the time that we're recording this, who knows when you're listening, but I think that's probably going to change here soon. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sorry. <And> hopefully. <laughs> In 2007, the APA launched a task force to evaluate the efficacy of conversion therapy and research. 
So what do they find? As we've mentioned, and we've pointed this out already, but just to make sure we're very clear on this because we dig, we dug into the research, but we also looked at other people who, who really dug into the research and sort of made that their work for a little while. There is little sound research on sexual orientation change efforts and quote, results of scientifically valid research indicate that it is unlikely that individuals will be able to reduce same-sex attractions or increase other sexual attractions through sexual orientation change efforts or SOCES. Basically, there is no evidence that it works and some evidence that it is harmful, end quote. And that is putting it, I think, much more nicely than what the research does actually show, which is it doesn't ever work and it's always harmful. Yeah, absolutely. So we have an organization, at least one of many that have said this is a harmful thing. It doesn't work, right? Still with that, in the U.S., 20 states have officially banned gay conversion therapy outright. That's it. Just 20 states. 30 states still allow some version of it, but 20 states have officially banned it and have laws and rules and guidelines for not implementing this. So the other states might maybe look down on it or maybe they have like bans, partial bans to this, but there's some other version of it that exists. Now, in 2012, California banned any therapy, quote unquote, designed to move a client from gay to straight orientation so that anything. So they have really clear language. Anything at all that's designed to change orientation is outright banned. You cannot do it. It is not part of the licensure. It's not part of the state. You cannot do it there. And that was in 2012. So that was eight years ago. Only eight years ago, though. Okay. So keep that in mind. In 1973, they removed homosexuality from the DSM. In 2012, they finally banned this. In California. In California alone. Yeah. No other states. And the language is very tricky here because I think there's people who are proponents of this are going to try and find ways around this language. So we've got to be as comprehensive as possible in these bands. I think California seems like it's probably the the most comprehensive one that we've looked at, but hopefully it's something that's going to change and they will continue to, we'll see some increase in, increase in these bannings. I guess what I'm trying to say, but of people who are banning this. Yeah. Now, some cases have gone to the Supreme Court. Again, the Supreme Court does not include guac, sour cream, and ground beef, <laughs> but it is a court nonetheless, and it's called Supreme were organizations that have sought to repeal state laws related to conversion therapy bans. So this one is particularly dangerous given the current Supreme Court makeup. Right. So that's just something to consider. It's like these are probably going to continue to come up, but we're now looking at a court, several justices on the court who are likely to block bans from happening. Right. Which that, you know, says a lot about, you know, the current state of the world. All right. So it's estimated that nearly 20 thousand to eighty thousand lbgtq plus minors will be subjected to the conversion therapy by licensed professionals where states have failed to ban the therapy so keeping this in mind with those states that have not banned it that still allow it the people that are implementing this are not just faith-based healers quote unquote they're actual licensed professionals there are mental health counselors that can go out and practice this in those states that don't ban it and I mean, I don't know if for those of you who are listening have ever been to a therapist that's maybe a faith-based therapist. There are those folks out there that help with maybe spiritual crises, but are also well-trained psychologists or counselors. Those folks do exist. Those folks may also be folks that use this type of therapy if it's something that falls within their faith-based practices. So you've got anywhere up to 80,000 minors that are going to come across this harmful therapy. So we have uh, an interesting person, as we've mentioned, that there have been people who sort of came out from the other side of this. McCray Game, he was the founder of the Hope for Wholeness Network, which I believe was a conversion therapy network, right? Yes. Yeah. 
He recently turned away from his use of conversion therapy in a really big way. So as we said, Hope for Wholeness Network was a faith-based conversion therapy program. And he spent 20 years working in the field, working in a capacity that disseminated and implemented conversion therapy. And Game recently came out as homosexual and has become a voice against the use of this harmful practice, citing that the quote-unquote therapy as harmful and a continuation of a cycle of shame and violence. And this is one of those instances where I feel like it's, it's kind of useful to point out that I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily bothered by hypocrisy because you could certainly say that he was a hypocrite. And I think that it's right to be upset for the harm that he has done. And the fact that he is trying to redeem himself is a laudable goal. I think we, I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that he is trying to undo some of the, some of the damage that has been done. And so I'm okay with personally being in support of people who are changing their ways to be better people. And even though it sucks that he spent 20 years bringing harm to people, and that's something that I think he's going to have to live with, he is doing better now. I think that's important. There is there is like a redemption story in there somewhere where it's like, you know, this person is now using their voice and using their position of power and using their experience to work against something that is as harmful as it is. And that can't be easy. I can't imagine that it's easy to live with. And like you said, like he'll have to live with that for the rest of his life. Whatever harm that is or that that he's been a part of, he's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. So hopefully he just continues to do good work and try to repair the damage he's done. He's not going to be able to repair it, but he can maybe create a path so that damage never happens again. Yeah. And, and put some better things out into the world. So, yeah. And I think there's a tendency to sort of want to get revenge and to be like, well, let's, you know, let's throw everyone under the bus. Let's set it on fire, burn it all down. And I totally get that because I think as far as the practice goes, I'm, I think we do need to burn it all down, but what I don't think is going to be useful is to like flip this on its head and be like, okay, let's take straight people and throw them in these torture chambers. Let's take faith-based organizations and, and like we're going to say like you're banned outright because that's just doing the same thing that they were doing. And anytime that you have a justification for bringing harm to people, you're in the wrong. And so right. that's not what we're advocating just to make sure we're really clear on that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think to kind of like maybe start to pull this all together and wrap this up, I think this is one of the most important statements from the APA, the organization that governs psychological practice in the United States, that does some international work, that helps with developing university programs and state licensure and all that. They kind of set the standard for what psychological practice should be in the United States, at least. The APA affirms that same-sex sexual and romantic attractions, feelings, and behaviors are normal and positive variations of human sexuality regardless of sexual orientation identity, reaffirms its position that homosexuality, per se, is not a mental disorder, and opposes portrayals of sexual minority youths and adults as mentally ill due to their sexual orientation, concludes that there is insufficient evidence to support the use of psychological interventions to change sexual orientation. APA also encourages mental health professionals to avoid misrepresenting the efficacy of sexual orientation change efforts by promoting or promising change in sexual orientation when providing assistance to individuals distressed by their own or others sexual orientation end quote so the apa basically says stop it that's that's all it said in that whole thing stop it stop doing it it doesn't work stop 
stating that it's got some kind of effect. Stop talking about the efficacy of this. It's not going to change. You're you can't subject people to this. I mean, it really it really goes it goes hard in the paint, really about this. In the words of T'Challa from Black Panther, "You are wrong." <laughs> That's exactly it. That's what they're saying. They're saying that in so many words. Right now, another interesting tidbit about all of this, and we'll get into the take home points right after this. But the idea is that Brazil. Ecuador and Malta are the only nations in the entire world that have outright banned conversion therapy. Brazil. Brazil. <laughs> I mean, that place, I don't know. That place is wild. No shade on Brazil, but they there has been some crazy stuff happening in Brazil for a while. So you guys, we can do better. Yeah, that's it. We we can do better. And so just I want the reason we kind of gave you all that information is to to let you know, like, this is not a historical issue. This is a current affairs issue, right? This is a current lifetime, in our lifetime issue, where people are being harmed. And they're being harmed in the aspect of psychological well-being. They're being harmed in the space of being presented therapy or treatment. Therapy is supposed to be helpful. So they're being presented this thing that's supposed to help them, and it's actually causing them so much harm that people are losing their lives over it. So you know, I, I can't reiterate that more than that. This is not a good thing. Conversion therapy is a bad thing. Stop doing it. And if you know there are people in your town or your spaces that are doing it, get them to stop doing it. Work with them. Work with your states. Work with your legislation to prevent this from continuing to occur. And hopefully your state will be one of those states that bans it. All right. So if you leave this episode with nothing, Nothing other than what we're about to tell you. I think the main take-home <laughs> points is, so don't leave it with nothing. The main take-home <laughs> points here is that there is no science to back up this intervention or these strategies. None whatsoever, simply put. Mostly, it's just harmful. A uh, few of them are maybe a little benign where there's relatively little harm, but for the most part, even the ones where there's not physical damage, there is almost always lasting psychological damage. So science says disapprove. Yes, agreed, agreed. And the other thing, too, is that it's 2020 as of this recording, and it's still happening. To me, that is bonkers that 121 years ago, a man said he could cure gayness with hypnotism. And today we're still practicing those methods when we have demonstrated time and time again it doesn't work. It's still happening. It's still harmful. And nearly a million people have been impacted directly by this, let alone the, the residual effects for the population that it's designed to cure. And I think the last one for me would just be to say that as a take-home point for all of this, this needs to be banned. Yep. I think that's that's one of my main take-home points, that this needs to be called an illegal practice that just needs to be gotten rid of. It is harmful, and there is no reason to do it. And so that's my final take-home point. That is a WWD, WWD stamp of approval for that take-home point. That is all <laughs> of us. We are in that boat. Like It is something that should not exist anymore outright we're not like i said like we said at the beginning we're not going to mince words it needs to be banned period awesome all right let's do a quick listener mail yay okay this comes from selena she says longtime listener maybe second time messenger cool thanks for writing back <laughs> yeah and anyway she goes on to say really appreciate and always learn something new from the topics discussed on the podcast the latest one on crying, very helpful, as I absolutely am an easy crier, especially for the happier times. Me too. The multi-part episodes on political views were fantastic. Thank you. Those were a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. The layout of the show is great, and the recommendations at the end are always a delight to hear. So anyway, thank you very much, Selena, for writing in. I appreciate all of those kind words. 
I'm glad we could help with the the crying one, and I'm glad you enjoyed <laughs> the political ones, and I'm also glad you hear the uh, you like the recommendations because we don't actually get a lot of feedback on those, although we've started to, and it's really fun to hear people enjoy that part because we kind of just decided to do it. <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of an on the whim thing, but it's like this nice little touch because I think I think one thing I really like about it is it kind of gives people insight onto who we are as people. Right. And it's a lot of fun because I think sometimes there's some shockers. I think sometimes it's on brand. Like sometimes like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But sometimes it's like, huh, never would have thought that he liked pumpkin rolls. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Selena, for writing in. And on that note, shall we do some recommendations? Let's do recommendations. recommendations all right so my recommendation is because i get really worked up about this topic and so after this one i need something to just kind of like bang my head to i am a big thrash metal fan so i recommend going listen to any thrash metal that you can find i typically recommend starting with bands like at the gates if you get to listen to slaughter of the soul that's a great record good band yeah good album power trips nightmare logic is a really good one And also any darkest hour. So go listen to those bands. If you really want to kind of get a taste of thrash metal, it's a lot of fun. That's my recommendation. Just any thrash metal band. That's good. I tend to like the fact that our recommendations are kind of non sequiturs for our topics, but because of some of the places where I was doing research and I've heard of this before, my recommendation is going to be to check out the Trevor project. And I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes and the Trevor project. And this quote is coming from their, their website. So this is what they say is sort of their mission here provides valuable resources to young people nationwide who may not have anywhere else to turn for help. That's why their work is so incredible. Thanks to Trevor's programs, LGBTQ youth are not alone. And so that's just a place to find resources. You can also donate to the Trevor Project to help them help these other people. And so they provide a lot of support for those who are in the LGBTQIA plus community, particularly for youth. I love it. Awesome. That's the best recommendation. Thanks. All right. If you survived conversion therapy and would like to tell us about it, then please shoot us an email. We would absolutely love to share anything that you have to to say about your experiences there. If you are someone who uses conversion therapy to change people, stop it forever and we don't want to hear from you. Agreed. If you like thrash metal or you're from the Trevor Project and would like to write to us, we'd be so happy to hear from you. So please, anybody, no matter what your thing is, it could be unrelated to anything we've talked about in this episode, but if you would like to talk to us about anything (laughs) that we've talked about or anything else or tell us even about episodes you would like to hear or tell us how you heard about us, all those things are welcome. Please contact us at info at www www.podcast.com. You can also find out more about this episode by going to our website. Reach out to us on all the social media platforms, including Reddit, where we are currently also living. And I think that's all that I've got. Do you have anything else, Shane? Nope, that's it. All right, thanks a lot. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. 
video and production assistance from Tyler Brasier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. A, I actually find there to cut, cut all this nonsense of what I'm just mumbling about right now. I'm pulling up the thing of what they say they are, so I can make sure that I say this succinctly. And <laughs> <laughs> can we just put? Can we just leave that in? <laughs> Justin, give me some official music. Yes, <laughs> some sort of presidential sounding or very official sounding music playing in the background. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> you all can't see me, but I'm wearing a neon pink tank top, so this will look really professional. <laughs> <clears throat> Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.